Hello and welcome to Architecture Insights, the podcast series produced by the New South Wales Architects Registration Board. I'm your host, Di Snape. Well, it's that time of year again at the board. We are now accepting applications for this year's Byra Hadley Travelling Scholarships. Perhaps like me, you're uh, vicariously living the European summer through social media. Um, so consider putting in an application for a Byra Hadley Travelling Scholarship. Next year, that could be you everyone's envious of. Um, but you don't have to go to Europe. There's no, there's no standard um, of scale or typology or field of interest across the Byra Hadley Travelling Scholarships. Um, in fact, I'd say they're characterised by an incredible diversity of interests and places and types and um, methodologies. Um, the three scholarships, um, which are the subject of the next three episodes that you will hear, are um, all completely different and will hopefully spark your imagination and give you the inspiration and motivation that you need to submit your own Borough Hadley application. The Borough Hadley bequest is Australia's most prestigious and sustained um, gift of this type. Um, over $3 million have, has been granted to over 220 architects since 1951. And uh, for more than 65 years, this legacy has helped architects and graduates and students of architecture to stay current and to connect with the world and undertake research and travel in cities and communities around the world in the field of their particular interest. I recently caught up with some returning travellers who actually took their scholarships here in Australia. In this episode, you'll hear my interview with Nicole Larkin, whose scholarship focused on the wild edge of New South Wales and in particular ocean pools. I also spoke with Bobby Bailey and Owen Kelly, who peddled a grand section across Australia and travelling a little bit further afield, gathering information about vertical schools, I also spoke with Adam Swinburne. So a very diverse range of projects, really interesting, all of them, um, and I hope that you'll enjoy listening to these episodes of Architecture Insights. I certainly enjoyed these conversations. So now let's listen to Nicole Larkin talking about her project, The Wild Edge. You're in the middle of actually doing your bara, aren't you? I am, yeah. I am. Um, so this is fre- fresh off the press, what we're about. It to is. Hear. It's exclusive, actually. Fantastic, listeners. You heard it here first. So we're going to talk about um, the wild edge. What was your original pitch for this? I started this project during my master's graduation uh, semester at the University of Sydney. We were focusing on a reimagination of Bondi Pavilion, which um, is a familiar building to a lot of people in Sydney in architecture. Um, and part of that was considering the wider context, which includes um, Bondi icebergs, but also the northern Bondi ocean pools, which are fairly iconic to anyone who lives in Sydney. Um, and I had a conversation with my tutor at the time, um, Dagmar Reinhardt, who still um, prolific in Sydney Uni and she asked a really interesting question which was where do ocean pools live in our planning framework 
they seem to live in a black hole. And I thought that was a really interesting question and I sort of started from there. Um, I found that they don't live in a black hole, <laughs> um, which has kind of um, sent me on a different path than I thought I would when I started my Hadley. But um, what is interesting is that we don't have a great deal of data on our ocean pools, despite um, there being a lot of uh, groundwork laid um, in 1990 by a fantastic survey um, that was commissioned by the National Trust to look into them. So um, just because there's so many pools, I, I guess it's been a challenge for people to try and do that before. So I saw something that other people hadn't been able to do that I might be able to do um, and provide something that's useful for the community, hopefully. So how many pools are there altogether in New South Wales along the coast? Well, it depends um, on your definition of an ocean pool. Um, if you take a broad look, there's 120 and that includes pools like icebergs, which are really formalised. It includes um, pools which we call ring of rock pools. Um, you see them... Um, down in Malabar. Um, it also includes pools like Redleaf, um, which is kind of a wharf net enclosure. That's a lot of pools to look at. So um, my definition was about ocean-facing pools, um, which are the completely exposed ones. They're not in the harbour, um, typically cut into the rock platform or built up with simple concrete walls. So there's always a deliberate defining structure. Of some kind? Of some kind. Um, pools like Ivor Row are very simple. They're a natural pool on a broad rock platform that locals have just widened and enlarged over time. So that's the most minimal intervention that you see. Let's just go back one step. What was in that original survey and what's allowed you to expand upon that existing information? The original survey, um, which was commissioned, was... Um, just um, focusing on the Sydney pools, so went down to Cronulla and up to the northern beaches um, and it, in, it included harbour pools. It was um, focusing on the heritage significance of the pools, so it was um, more of a look at the, her at the history of them, at their heritage significance, but it did also have sketches of the pools, um, picking out their um, key characteristics and, and built features. Um, but it wasn't survey drawings that weren't accurate, so they were sort of limited in how useful they were, particularly thinking about the section of a pool. It was really only a plan drawing, no sectional information at all. And so what have you used to get that information? The reason that I thought I would be able to take on this project now was because there's been some really great um, software and technology that's come into the market, um, pairing drones with mapping software. So um, that means you can fly a drone over an area, takes a series of photos, and then the software will basically create a 3D model of what you've photographed. So it means in uh, 10 or 20 minutes, I can have 3D data of an ocean pool um, and I can go there, do it myself. It's a really um, efficient setup and it's the kind of um, technology which um, feeds into all of our BIM software um, and as um, architects in the technological age, uh, it gives us that advantage. One person doing um, the man hours of what would have been a three or four person team back in the 1990s when they did the original survey. That sounds like a whole lot of fun too. 
It was an incredible, um, an incredible project. So I completed most of the field work in October last year. Um, it took six weeks, um, and that's um, in part just travelling up and down New South Wales, making sure the weather conditions are right, trying to get there when it's low tide and things like that. Um, the other thing that's great about it is that and this project was all on the rock platforms. It's not a straight line. Needed to deal with some really organic forms. So, how, what's the process been like? Have you been doing it all by yourself? You and a drone, or my husband's been helping me. <laughs> uh, he's been very good. But um, most all Biohadley projects, um, everyone has a mentor. So I've um, been very lucky to have Alex Zans, um mentoring me on this project, and he's a voice of reason and rigour and has been fantastic at guiding me down the right path um, as to where this project has gone. Um, So I encourage everyone who's looking at doing a project to get a mentor on board who can help you steer through the project because it adds a lot of value and and will help you through the process. So did you already know, uh, like, were you already proficient in this new technology just because of what you were studying or have you learnt along the way? No, I learnt along the way. So I taught myself how to use it all and um, it's it's um, been really interesting because it's about point clouds and now in, in my um, professional work that I'm doing, I'm seeing that come through. Surveyors are starting to use all that technology. So it started being about um, my Byra Hadley project, but it's given me a skill set that I can use for other things, which has been great. The original survey, which was commissioned by the National Trust, is your work, or does it also have a relationship with the National Trust? This it does. Um, yeah, I knew that the National Trust had an interest in ocean pools from their 1990 survey. Um, so I just saw an opportunity to build on that and give them potentially a better record um, that you know professionals in the industry can use. Um, a sketch is useful, but you know, and a, a semi-accurate sort of model or drawing is re- is even more useful. So my ambition was to make all of this information available to their archive um, so anyone can go and use this information in the future. I think that's such an interesting idea because, you know, to that old maxim, what gets measured matters, you've done all of this measurement. It's now um, available to the National Trust and anybody else who's interested in heritage significance. Um, So you've kind of given it a whole new value as well, um, arguably. I hope so. I hope so. That's my ambition. And um, I guess the other flip side of Byra Hadley projects is they're all um, evidence-based research and practice-based research. So, you know, it's about creating a base that other people can draw on and and add to the conversation with. And if you don't have that base information, then you can't really go a step forward. So, yeah, this allowed me to lay those foundations for people. And it's, you know, I'm already working on foundations that were laid by the National Trust in their previous survey. So we'll just keep building and building and hopefully, you know, it, it enables the community to take care of a really amazing typology. So having that, having now kind of created this beautiful, may I say, taxonomy of ocean pools um, and highlighted that they do matter, what is it um, that you think is significant about coastal pools right now for New South Wales? Well... Both um, in terms of our architecture and our environment. 
Yeah, um, the ABC put out um, an article recently um, where they were talking about where have these pools come from, why do people love them, um, and yeah, I, I think they're um, incredibly significant and poignant and they always crop up in media at the moment. Um, but I raised that article because there was a line in it which said, you know, they're here to stay. And what was um, what's interesting is they're not here to stay. We're having a lot of um, increasingly severe storm surges that come through in 2016, quite a lot of the um, coastal walk between Bondi and Tamarama was damaged. Um, Bronte Ocean Pool was damaged in those storms. And, you know, we're, we have to face the reality of sea level rise, which all of which um, face, poses challenges to this typology. You know, we could potentially lose them. Not today, not in 50 years, but maybe in 100 years. Um, and it's not just that they might go underwater with inundation. It's also that they're pretty vulnerable structures and they're not really made to stand the test of really huge... Um, swell actions and, and things like that. So we, we're going to have to start looking after them a little bit more, but we need sort of firm data sets and research and design work behind that. Given that you're still in the process of writing up your final report, um, has the project also allowed you, though, to uncover, you know, what the role of these pools is for the communities that are around them and even more broadly for New South Wales? Do you think that that's... Um, changed over time or have they? Um, they're, they're certainly iconic. Um, New South Wales having has the highest concentration of ocean pools in the world. Um, so they're very um, unique and they speak a lot of the built environment in New South Wales and that's part of why a lot of them have heritage significance. Um, communities seem to attach a lot of value to them, particularly the coastal communities, which in New South Wales, a lot of us live on the coast. Um, they're, they're not just places of recreation or exercise. They're also kind of community centres. You have a lot of swim clubs and surf clubs who congregate there. So many times while I was doing field research, you'd go down and there'd be a fantastic group of 10 or 20 people who were there. And, and some people are swimming, other people are there with their kids, other people are you know, doing boot camp beside the pool. So they're real community centres. And um, what's fantastic is um, there's actually already a lot of research about the value, the social value of ocean pools and what they mean to communities and how they activate them. Um, so I think I think it's, it's self-evident, all of the value that they contribute to the community. What do you... Why do we have ocean pools? We have so much beach in New South Wales. We're spoiled for it. That's what even what even started the the creation of them? That's that's true. We um, we have a lot of coastline, but it's sometimes treacherous. And um, certainly, um, you know, a hundred years ago, people were quite um, quite afraid of sharks and shark attacks. Um, Still afraid. Um, so ocean pools are, um, you know, they give safe access to the ocean. Um, ocean swimmers sometimes, when the ocean's too volatile, they go into the ocean pool and it's a bit more of a calm environment. But um, underpinning all of this is actual planning legislation. So the Municipal Baths Act in um, 1869, I think it was, um, came in for New South Wales and that allowed councils to 
um, acquire land or lease land and build baths or, or acquire baths that were already there illegally and actually make them legitimate um, legitimate infrastructure for the community. So um, the reason that it's, it's come through was A, because people wanted some safer places to swim and also because um, it helped a lot of councils which saw the value in um, having coastal areas in their um, local government areas and how that attracts ratepayers and you know it's it's about um, creating immunity amenity for the for the community so there was a big push behind it people thought they were quite popular so is that what changed your view on the um the black hole that you were talking about in planning. Has there been anything um, since then? What's your current thesis? Yeah, so um, that act obviously didn't stay in power for a long time and we now, um, we're now treating our coastlines as really precious landscape, as we should. Um, we don't allow development and building along, you know, beaches, their public places. We're fiercely proud of that, I think, in Australia. Um, but... What that means is we haven't had a new ocean pool built since 1960, and that's because it's it's just a real um, a really difficult thing to propose. Certainly, Ballina and Port Macquarie are currently trying to campaign for ocean pools, and there's also a few councils, um, Cottesloe in Western Australia. Does that current protection of the coastline actually protect the pools, or is it perhaps leading? in some instances to neglect is there is there a problem that you see there or or not so much no so um our planning regulations don't prevent us from looking after the current pools i actually would say a lot of the councils that i've seen exhibit best practice they put quite a lot of resources into maintaining their pools um, and within a planning framework, they have the means to do that. There's the state, envir- state environmental planning policy for infrastructure, and under that, they can maintain the pools. They don't have to necessarily put in a DA every time that they need to do work to their pools. So in terms of where the pools sit in planning, I kind of found that that was actually a really um, simple, well, not a simple framework, but it was a readily available framework that councils were looking after their pools through and even doing quite substantial um, works to their pools to keep them in use. Um, So kind of looking after your pools is in one basket and then building new ones is in a different basket. And that's because the environmental impact that that would have on an area is significant. And we, in New South Wales, our legislation is about ensuring that we don't have an adverse environmental impact. So you face quite a big hurdle trying to introduce a new pool into quite a fragile marine environment. So that's where we are now. Um, And I'm very interested to see how Ballina goes with their pool. They're currently doing a feasibility study to investigate that. It would be fantastic if um, people could explore that further and I hope that's what my research gives them the grounding to do. Um, I think the pools are, you know, when you think about it, they're really um, efficient piece, pieces of infrastructure. They give a lot of amenity. They don't, they certainly don't use as much resources as a conventional pool would. You think about, you know, the, having a lifeguard, looking after a pool, maintaining it. That's 
quite an expense on a council. So these could be um, really, really efficient pieces of infrastructure that we could be um, reintroducing or reimagining. So let's just talk for a minute in the nitty gritty of your drawings and documentation. These will become an open uh, resource to anyone who's interested in. Um, you can already look at a bunch of them now on your website. That's right. You? Yeah. Which is nicolearkin.com. Okay. I'll put a link to that on the SoundCloud podcast page as well if anybody wants to go straight there. What do you want these documents to do? What do you want them to offer people? Well, my biohealthy research is about just creating um, a database um, and the next phase is really to take that information and draw some conclusions out of it. So I hope that um, people in the community can take this and they can draw some conclusions. They can say this is what works and this is what doesn't and if we were to build a new ocean pool or if we were to substantially upgrade an existing ocean pool, how should we do it? And the underpinning of that is a lot of these pools were built during the Depression. They were public works projects to give people work. They were simple structures um, and, I mean, that's the beauty of them. They're really minimal interventions. So how do you balance that with a rigorous planning framework and um, all the building codes that we try and comply with and safety in a really... um, harsh environment really on the coast how do you balance all those things with the intrinsic natural beauty that is an ocean pool how do you get that same result in today's planning environment Um, I think that you can only come to that conclusion through sort of rigorous analysis of what's there and you know team that with sort of looking at precedents um, that exhibit sort of design excellence and these Um, I think a lot of ocean pools have sort of been looked at um, in exclusion of kind of um, or not from a design lens. Um, And I think that there's a lot to, um, a lot that can be added, a lot that can be improved. Setting aside for a moment the regulatory potential of our planning framework, what do you think the, an architectural eye on that negotiation of... Mm. um, how did you describe it? Minimal intervention in extraordinary landscape. Well, I've looked to a few um, uh, precedents to see what they've done and how architects and designers have um, have treated that in the past. And there's some great examples from um, Teresa Muller and um, Alvaro Cesar. Um, they've got some really interesting examples of where I mean, and it's it should be hand-in-hand hand with kind of landscape architecture in terms of that minimal intervention. What can you retain? What's the minimum you can do to give the most amenity? Um, I think that that's really where the architecture lens comes in, retaining that natural beauty but giving amenity and safety and all of those things and balancing all of that. And it's it's kind of an interesting thing that architects do. They kind of synthesise a lot of complex things and try to come up with an elegant solution that speaks to all of those, those issues. I think that the pools, as they are, offer a lot of amenity, but what, what more could they offer? Could they be used, you know, year-round 
in some cases, yes, in some, no. In, in some cases, they're already used year-round. Think about icebergs. Like, it's a celebration, um, and that's, that's what's fantastic about them. You've taken this really kind of sort of um, very precise and scientific approach to mapping these places, but there's something incredibly romantic, really, about this project as well. What's the... Is there a romance in it for you? Yeah, I'm a terrible romantic when it comes to the ocean pools. I think that's what makes you fall in love with them. And I, I have big rose-coloured glasses thinking about how much Australians, you know, our, our coastline is fairly iconic and a lot of people associate it with our national identity. And I think everyone's got memories of the beach as they grow up. And, you know, often if you look at our literature and... Um, how they portray it in the media it's you know our rites of passage happen on the beach it's the it's the stage that our lives play out on and you know you can extrapolate it all the way um and there's definitely cases where people say the country is really where our heart is but there's there's a lot of romantic elements and and it is a big part of our culture and media so um what's interesting is that um ocean pools are kind of this dot of the built environment right on the edge of our, our landscape. And um, Tim Winton writes about it really beautifully and he's written quite a lot about the coast. Um, and he talks about it being kind of this ever-changing space and that's why we're drawn to it. I think this underlying things such as continuity of space, framing vistas, those kinds of things I do see in um, the pools when I go through and do the analysis. You come around the headland and the pool's been sighted in such a way that it frames your view or you kind of have a procession where you enter down through the landscape and you can't see anything and then it's all revealed right at the end. And those kind of relationships are what make them make the pools beautiful and, and they're the things that we should probably be trying to aim for if we're building a new pool. Um, so I think there's definitely those kind of elements that I see in the data. Um, and just going back to sort of the cultural significance of them, I think it was touched on quite a lot by um, our Biennale exhibition, which was two years ago now, I think, the the pool, where they talked about the significance of the pool in our, in our culture. and The Venice Architecture Biennale. That's yes. correct, yeah. yeah. Um, and that was... That goes back to that romantic idea of kind of cultural identity and uh, I was wondering project. if that project Im inspired or influenced you at all totally um I didn't know about it when I started this project but it it opened my eyes this was something that people are interested in it's got importance and it just I think more so than my project that covered the cultural significance of this typology but they were still lacking that scientific side um, and that sort of documented um, research-based side, which I hope that my project kind of speaks to that a bit more. You were talking about these places being vulnerable to um, storm surges and, you know, the kind of weather events mm. that we've been having lately along the coastline. I'm wondering if that's part of your thinking as well, the the engagement of community with those ideas. Yeah, and I think that ocean pools really bring it home for a lot of communities. Part of what I quite liked about this topic 
particularly for the Byra Hadley, is that it's a really simple structure. It's not a complex building and it's very easy to have conversation with people on really complex topics about planning and climate change and things that are quite hard to discuss. You can discuss them with someone and they understand it immediately and they can relate to it immediately. So I think people are more aware of it and I think that it's a good gateway to talk about this stuff with communities. So what's the next step then? The bigger focus for me at the moment is getting the information I do have out to people. So that's um, sort of through the website, but it's also um, through the archives of the National Trust and, of course, through the Architects Registration Board. So um, I'm sort of focusing on that at the moment. But um, there's been a big part of this project, which has been processing data. So um, each pool is um, sort of takes time to process, and when you multiply it by sixty, it's a lot, um, a lot of man hours. So the the important thing is getting it out there, and um, sort of this is the first first phase of the project. And once I can finish that, I hope I can go into having some time to analyse um, all of the data I've collected, and hopefully start to formalise some ideas about what good ocean pool design is, and and sort of take that wherever it goes. That sounds like we will see you again here for a conversation (laughs) at part two because I'd be really interested to um, hear what what all of that data has revealed to you. Thank you very much for coming in, Nicole. It's lovely to have a chat with you and um, best of luck for the next phase. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was Nicole Larkin here in the Purple Podcast booth talking about her Ocean Pools project, The Wild Edge. I'll put a post I'll I'll post a link to Nicole's website, um, which is under her name. Um, and we'll upload her report once that is completed. So Um, Please consider applying for a travelling scholarship. Um, Applications close at the end of July and you can find the link to the relevant page of our website up with this podcast. Thanks for listening to Architecture Insights. Please give us a like on SoundCloud or uh, iTunes, wherever you download your podcasts from. Um, And if you'd like to listen to other episodes of our podcast or podcasts that we like, have a browse around our SoundCloud page. We we tag um, podcasts about subjects that we're interested in. You might uh, be interested in them too. Check it out. Thanks again for listening. I'm Dice Snape. <laughs>